This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Everything that has made America, America is at stake. That's why today I'm announcing my candidacy for president of the United States. Yes, indeed. Add another one to the list of contenders for the Democratic presidential nomination, Vince. This one, though, as we know, uh, Joe Biden, former Vice President Joe Biden, he really enters the race as a front runner. Well, he was a front runner before he entered the race. So, <laughs> <That's> so true. <laughs> which was, which was Hovering in the very interesting. Right? Yeah, exactly. All right. Um, so- no, I'm just saying he, he wanted to be the last one in, and uh, fingers crossed he is the last one in because it's a field of 20, starting to look like the Kentucky Derby. It is. I can't wait to see like the debate start. Joe um, Subcheck is senior political editor at Bloomberg News. He is with us right now from our 991 studio in Washington, D.C. I feel like, uh, Joe, best kept secret, right? We knew we had a really pretty strong inclination that we knew this was going to happen. Tell us a little bit about his entrance into the race and what it does to the other contenders that are up there well you know this really will settle the race down into uh into into and show us where it's going to go you know he is not actually the last one who's probably going to get into the race there are a few more people who have been talking about it and may do so uh by the beginning of may uh but the top of the field is is probably pretty well set at this point um although let me add that it is early who's at the uh, top who would you put well obviously biden right uh, right now biden uh followed by bernie sanders who gets roughly 20 to 25 percent support um and then there's sort of a, a a cluster of candidates including elizabeth warren um beto o'rourke uh kamala harris and uh pete Buttigieg uh now uh is 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 in that field as well uh so the, the biden's big challenge here is to uh, cement that lead and show that it's more than just simply name recognition. Uh, Sanders and and, and Biden are are, two, are the two most recognized names of all the candidates uh, that are in there, and the, and that plays into a bit of their uh, poll standings. Well, I, I think he did something, or at least he's hoping he did something with that today. He hired as a senior advisor uh, Bernie Sanders' 2016 press secretary. I, it, from his camp, I, I guess they're saying it's uh, to broaden his, his base uh, in its diversity. Um, but it, is it also to get uh, maybe a little leverage against the other side of the party, which is the, the socialist push of the party, either to gain a little insight as to where they're going and protect himself from them a little bit? Well, he'll get uh, some insight from the staff. And one of the things that he did in addition to that announcement uh, is that he released a, a, a whole long list of, of uh, political professionals, uh, many of them uh, veterans of past campaigns, uh, which really is is a bit of a power move that shows that, yes, uh, despite what seemed like a fits and starts uh, uh, campaign entry, he has got some organization behind him. Uh, but uh, his hiring uh, is, is also meant to signal that 
uh, recognizing that a lot of the Democratic Party is skewing younger. Uh, it's uh, heavily uh, female voters and uh, minorities. Those are going to be the, the big keys for uh, any Democratic candidate. You know, there's a couple things that come to mind. I was listening to a surveillance on Bloomberg Radio this morning, Joe. And, you know, there's a, you mentioned the younger generation. There's a whole younger generation, right, that doesn't really know who Joe Biden is. And I do wonder about how that plays against him. I do think about him being 76, right? He'll be, what, right. 77, 78? Uh, if indeed he could get elected. Uh, I do think about his stamina. He's had some health issues in the past. How will those, if at all, play into his potential for success here? Well, that could be a real issue. There is uh, very clearly among the uh, Democratic base, as as we saw in the 2018 election, there is a, a hunger for a new generation of leadership. And there are a number of other people in the, in the race that certainly represent that. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, you know, Harris, uh, O'Rourke, and Buttigieg, uh, Cory Booker, uh, are all a, a, a generation younger and uh, have been considered up-and-coming leaders of the party. Uh, so that is that is uh, that is probably going to be an issue for him, as well as for Bernie Sanders, who's actually a year older uh, than mm-hmm. uh, Joe Biden. And how old is Donald Trump? I always forget. 70s? Seventy-two. Two. I think. Seventy-two. Yeah. Okay. Right. Right. So uh, uh, people keep talking about it. Um, Personally, I do not know if it's a big deal or not, but I, it, it, I'd love to know what your take is on it because it, it's a big deal for a lot of people, is no endorsement from former President Obama, and he was his vice president. So you think... Yep. What's up with that? You well, think if he was going to pick a horse in this race, he'd pick the horse he picked once before. Yeah, but uh, it's actually not that surprising because uh, Obama's position is uh, the essentially the head of the party. Uh, he is not going to want to be seen as putting his thumb on the scale this early. He may he may yet come out for Biden or for another candidate, uh, but it, it, it doesn't do the party a lot of good if he's if he's up there trying to uh, be a kingmaker at this at this juncture. So he he wants to, uh, the the whole thing to play out. And and remember, he did not endorse in the 2016 either uh, mm-hmm. when his Secretary of State and and uh, uh, close ally was running uh, in the primary against Bernie Sanders. Joe, just got about 50 seconds left here. I want to fast forward. Let's just assume Biden gets in the race, everything goes well, he gets the nomination, and he's the one who goes up against Donald Trump. What is the chances of his, of, of him beating Donald Trump? It's a long way out. Uh, Trump has some vulnerabilities. Those are uh, primarily in the states of Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Those provided his margin of victory uh, in in 2016 by a total margin of like 77,000 votes. That's not very much. Those should be states where Biden plays well. Uh, it's his, his working class uh, uh, roots and his, his appeal to the working class. So, you know, there, there, there certainly is a chance, and Trump has some vulnerabilities, including the fact that his approval ratings uh, haven't been above 50 percent since he's been in office. Yeah. But, it, but it is, it's, it's a ways away. Fascinating. I'm already excited about the political race. Are you, Vince? Yeah, this is, I, I mean, the Democratic <laughs> primary is going to be extraordinary with the, the whole debate process and how they figure out who goes against who. It's like the brackets all over again. It, it's the NCAA. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Hungry 
part, which means we got to talk a little bit about Chipotle today. Which Vince. means it does. We're going to bring in restaurant analyst Nick Setian from Wedbush Securities. He's on the phone from Los Angeles. He's going to discuss with us Chipotle earnings, which were out on Wednesday. The stock not doing so well Right. Today. came out after the close uh, last night. We were breaking those numbers down. Nick, stock is down. I mean, it's had a great bullish run here in 2019, but uh-oh, wait. Uh, I was kind of like a wait what moment, that they've got another subpoena related to previously reported illnesses, or is this is this a, a new subpoena but based on everything that we've seen from the company over the last few years, those concerns, or what is it? Hi, Carol. Thanks for uh, yeah. uh, inviting me back on. It's always a pleasure. Um, so uh, I actually don't think it has as much to do uh, with the subpoena in terms of uh, the stock being in the red today. Yeah, the expectation for the quarter was sky high. Mm-hmm. Based on the credit card data that a lot of investors look at, uh, expectations were you know, 12 13% comps for the quarter. So 10% isn't good enough, you know, ironically. Uh, well, a lot of other companies would kill for 10% Just comps. Say right. uh, but, for, but for Chipotle, 10% isn't good enough. And the reason is because the question uh, underlying uh, the report uh, yesterday, uh, the primary focus was, is this the peak? What do we do from here? You know, do we start to slow down in terms of comp growth? We've got tougher compares now ahead of us. Uh, is the loyalty rollout going to be enough to sustain this type of a comp cadence for the rest of the year? And if it's not, how do we get to those bullish margin expectations in the out years all the way out to 2021? Because if you're buying Chipotle today, you're not buying it for 2019 numbers, you're buying it for 2021 numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so is that EPS number going to be $20? Is it going to be $25? Uh, that's a big you know, difference. And that, that means the difference between $600 and $800. Uh, and so that's the question that, that's, that's being answered today. So, I mean, your, your rating now is neutral, um, but you still have a price target of 700 which is um, reasonably well above the 676 we're looking at now. And you're talking about you know, 10% comps. I, that sounds reasonable. I mean, you, you, we're not, you know, just I've grown 56% and since the new CEO. Um, it, you have to expect some pullback. I mean, it's, this still looks like they're on a reasonable trajectory, no? I think so. I think so. I think they are on a reasonable trajectory. Trajectory. Uh, I'm actually raising my uh, comp expectation for the year to 8%, uh, and, I, and I think that we do have enough drivers to get there. Um, you know, Next year, even if it's a little bit of a slower comp, it's not going to be much lower than mid-single digits, plus we're going to take another round of pricing, so that should help margins. And so ultimately, I do think there's a track uh, straight to something like you know 23% level margins in 2021 and, and $25 in, in EPS. Uh, I think that more or less, though, was reflected, you know, at 720. Uh, and the question today is, you know, are we still on track? Uh, I actually think that we are. Uh, I don't think the pullback today is enough to to justify necessarily pounding the table. Yeah. Uh, but ultimately, uh, I do think we're on track, and uh, I wouldn't bet against Brian Nickel after what he's pulled off over the last year. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. I guess one of the things I think we were concerned about, too, beyond the problems and whether the company could get that back on track and kind of clean up all of that stuff, but whether or not, you know, when Chipotle first came out with their model and Steve Ells and, you know, as, as the co-founder of it, you know, it was different from what was out there, right? There was the fast food space, but these guys helped really create uh, the fast casual space. Now there are so many choices 
and you go to a sweet green, no cash, you just kind of whiz through, uh, you know, and it's all made so seamless and so easy. Is Chipotle still something that consumers want in terms of a product? And are they, you know, moving enough in terms of the digital space? Just got about 40 seconds here, Nick. Well, I mean, if you look at the you know 100% growth in digital, that's accounting for over 90% of the comp. So wow. 90% of 10% comp was, was all digital. So wow. clearly he's doing the right things. And he's doing it in such a way where it's accretive to margins where every other restaurant out there is unable to pull it off. Uh, and so he's an operator, you know, as opposed to the visionary that Steve Ells was. He's an operator. He's taking what he's got and he's making the best of it. And I think that's really the bottom line. All right, going to leave it on that note. Hey, Nick, always love getting some time with you. Nick Setian, he's restaurants analyst over at Wedbush Securities on the phone from Los Angeles. As Vince mentioned, he's got a neutral rating on Chipotle, a price target of $700. Right now, the stock trading at $675.86 a share, and we are seeing um, some selling pressure uh, on this uh, Thursday, down about 5%, but again, it has had a tremendous run-up, up up about 56% this year, Vince. It's a huge run, and and a a little setback uh, doesn't look Look like it looks more like a buying opportunity than anything else. Right, and those comp sales were still impressive, no doubt. See, it ain't believing, looks are so deceiving, don't be taken for a ride. So Tesla shares uh, tanking again. They're down about 4% at $248 and change as we speak. Uh, this is it loses another bullish analyst on Wall Street, and this after the company reported a much wider than expected quarterly loss and also hinted at the possibi- possibility of a capital raise. Dana Hull uh, is uh, all things Tesla for us here at Bloomberg News. She's a technology reporter. She's on the phone from our San Francisco bureau. Um, kind of interesting, first of all, t- uh, Dana, what happened yesterday that things were late? I know it's not consistent when it comes to Tesla earnings, right? It's <laughs> been kind of all over the mat, but it really had all of us wondering, like, what's going on here? Oh, I know. Yeah. So, it's, so typically Tesla drops its earnings report right after the market close, and usually by like 105, 110, maybe 115, you have a shareholder letter and the financials that you can read. And you have like, you know, over an hour to kind of digest all of this. And then Elon Musk um, and, the, you know, and the company executives get on a conference call with the analysts at, at 2.30. Yesterday, we didn't get the shareholder letter until until after 2 o'clock. I mean, it was it was over an hour late. So, it's five and so o'clock, that was 5 o'clock our time, so well after the closing bell. Well after the close. And, you know, we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting. And so, basically, you know, investors and analysts just had very little time to digest everything before the call started. And, you know, I, I mean, I don't know why they were late. They didn't, they didn't, you know, explain why they were late. But it was a really ugly quarter. Yeah. <laughs> and so... So, um, so I think what was so you know everyone was expecting a loss. It was a wider loss than people had thought. Um, and then what was interesting about the call was that they, they kind of dodged a lot of questions about demand. But then Musk sort of, you know, after a great question by Tony Sakanagi of Bernstein, you know, admitted that he's he thinks there is merit in raising in raising capital. And previously he had sort of been adamantly opposed to raising capital. So. Um, so yeah, so now it's just sort of back to like, well, how much do they need, and when are they going to raise, and who's going to be and, part of that deal? And, and how expensive is it going to be for them? It's how, I mean, some of the analysts from the notes that I'm seeing are saying that they need 2.5 or 3 billion. Um, wow. I mean, it's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> and and yeah. at at what price? I mean, they they're essentially junk. I mean, Netflix uh, raises five and a half percent. They have to be well north of that, and that's going to put increased pressure on what is already a cash flow problem. Um, right. As those notes come to. Right. Right. 
So, so yeah. So, and you know, and it's interesting because I mean, there there's there was a lot of there was a lot of speculation, you know, among the short sellers that Elon wasn't raising because he couldn't. That there that somehow the SEC was preventing him from raising. So, so that's interesting. I, I don't, you know, I don't I don't know if there's any truth to that, but he he's certainly open to raising, and it, it just basically changes the whole thesis of the company, which was that they were going to be sustainable, sustainably profitable. And you know, in the third quarter and the fourth quarter, Tesla post posted back-to-back quarterly profits for the first time ever. And there was a real sense like, okay, mm-hmm. the Model 3 is here and this company is now is profitable. And now we're just kind of back to the same old, same old, which is like they're losing money and they need to raise money. They're going to dilute existing shareholders if they do that. Like when when do we sort of get to just sort of sustainable profits again? And he guided that they don't think that they're going to be profitable until the third quarter. So like the second mm-hmm. quarter, basically, they're not saying they're going to be profitable. So, Dan, when he says he's open to a cash raise, is it that he almost has to? I mean, operating cash flow is less than the previous quarter. They got a debt payment, the company's largest ever, nine hundred and twenty million, and they have another five hundred and six. Excuse me, five hundred and sixty-six million of convertible bonds coming due in November. Is he open to a cash raise, or does he really have a choice? I think he has to. I mean, so they did. So they paid off the 920 million debt in February. That's why the cash. That's part of why the cash balance is so low this quarter. But yeah, looking forward, I mean, they have a lot of big. You know, they're guiding for capex of over two billion. So if they if they're if they're guiding to spend all this capex and they have not enough on their balance sheet, they need to raise. I mean, there's no question about it. Yeah. Hey, Dan, <laughs> um, you know what I wonder too is if they backed off, and you've got this in in, in your reporting and your story. You know, I think. Um, Musk said that he was asked by an analyst how much the autonomous endeavor is costing Tesla. This was from the Investor Day on Monday, and he says it's basically our entire expense structure. So if they backed off of that and just focused on producing EVs, electric vehicles, what would the picture of Tesla look like? If they backed off some of those other businesses, right. you know, is it, a, is it a stronger company? Would Wall Street investors look at it differently? Well, I think that that's what some some people would probably like to think. I mean, Tesla has has suffered from mission creep since uh, it was founded. I mean, it was originally founded to make high-performance electric cars and then to make a mass-market electric car. But along the way, Tesla acquired SolarCity mm-hmm. and got really interested in autonomy and um, you know built its own battery factory and now is talking about unleashing an insurance product. And you know, so it's like right. so. And I mean, you know, I think Elon now feels that you you know the future is autonomous. But I mean, the original mission of the company was to be just electric, and then and then now you're sort of marrying autonomy to that. Um, and he, you know, he said at Autonomy Day on Monday that autonomy was basically the company's entire expense structure. So um, yeah, they've 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 taken on a lot. I mean, they have a lot of projects going on, and they may have this big product pipeline, um, a, a gigafactory in China, a Model Y, a Tesla semi truck, a pickup truck. Um, I mean, they have a lot that they want to accomplish, but you know, are, can all of these teams kind of focus on all of those projects simultaneously? It's it just seems to be you know, I mean, you, you look at the shares today, like you know, people are you know, investors are, are worried. I think you hit the nail on the head. He seems to want to do so many things at once. He can't focus on the primary business. I mean, on Wednesday, they reaffirmed their forecast they'll deliver three hundred and sixty to four hundred thousand cars this year but only 63,000 delivered in the first quarter. How does he ramp up to match what he said Mm -hmm. just yesterday? Right. Well, it's interesting, too, because the whole thesis of the company seems to have changed. It used to be, you know, invest in us because we're going to make the the best electric car on the market. Now it's like invest in us because – 
three years from now, buying a car, will, you know, driving a car will be like riding a horse, and we're going to have this awesome autonomy product. And we used to hear a lot about production problems. Now the questions are really more about demand. And just today, the day that his settlement agreement with the SEC is due, he's tweeting again about <laughs> how now they're going to delay a price hike that was supposed to be on May 10th to May yes. On May first to May tenth, so it's like okay, really, there's not a demand problem. Like if you don't, you don't constantly change your pricing if demand is solid. Yeah, I do wonder. I mean, are we hearing anything from you know employees inside the company about how things are? Have things settled down? Or is there more pressure? I just wonder. Yeah, I mean, I think there's always a lot of pressure at the end of the quarter to yeah. move cars. Um, on the call yesterday, they they seemed to sort of say that that April was looking really strong, and they, they kind of indicated that you know there's seasonality in the auto market, and that the winter months are always slow. So they they were sort of guiding that they feel confident for this quarter. Um, but inside the company, you know, I just you know I think people work people work very hard at Tesla. They work very long hours. It's like the boot camp of Silicon Valley, and. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but you know, <laughs> geez, what a week though, man! Right? Uh, um, lots and lots of stuff. Um, Dana, thank you so much. Really appreciate you making sense of all the stuff we got uh, from Tesla this week, and certainly after that earnings report. Dana Hall, she's technology reporter at Bloomberg News, on the phone from our San Francisco bureau. Check her out on Twitter at Dana D A N A Hall H U L L. So the kids in America, yep, we're talking about Gen Z. They're about to become the planet's biggest consumer spending force. And yet this group, really more about saving what's in their wallets or spending it differently. Uh, Frugality is really happening around the globe. Business editor Jim Ellis to tell us why Gen Z is really different. He's here along with Jill Weber, Bloomberg Business Week editor, both in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, joining Vince and myself. Jill, i got to kick it off with you because we talk so much about millennials and how they work and how they spend and how they live differently. But Gen Z is really a force to be reckoned yeah, with. Yeah, we're so over millennials and their avocado <laughs> toast. Uh, That's in the rear view. I, 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 totally. So I think about this group, seven-year-olds to 22-year-olds. So the oldest are just coming out of college right now, and they're bigger than the boomers, right? Huge. That's massive. And the consumer preferences that they're going to have, which we're just beginning to really get a sense of, we think are, is really going to uh, redefine everything that we think of about consumerism, about how we shop, loyalty to brands, and it's just going to be a fun one to watch because it's going to there's some chaos. We'll no doubt unless you're a retailer, but they, they also have some really funny throwback qualities. Like they like shopping in malls of all places. So you know, what's old is never dead. What's up with that? Jim Ellis, come on in on this and tell us a little bit about the reporting. Because what's really wonderful, it's the cover story of the magazine this week, but there's three different angles that uh, the magazine looks at. Yeah, one of the things that we really like to do with this is to say it's more than just um, uh, people who go and shop at the malls. We also have a piece that's looking at what this means for one of the biggest industries out there, which is the auto industry. A lot of people forget that um, people lock into a brand very young in life. Right. And... um, the U.S. auto companies have been moving. My dad moving. was it. We were GM family That was it. Up. And you yeah. get one, and as you get older, you buy a more expensive model and whatever. Mm-hmm. Now, um, Detroit has decided that SUVs and trucks is where all the money is, and so therefore, we we're getting out of cars just at the time that Gen Z comes along with not enough money to buy a $37,000, $50,000 SUV. So what are you going to do? Leave those people out in the, you know, that's the problem. They're making a, you know, they've made a, a decision that in the short term is going to make them a lot of money, concentrating on expensive cars, but are you leaving back tomorrow's market? 
I think there's a another undercurrent in that, which we also hit on in the package, which is this is actually a pretty thift, thrifty generation. Like frugal. Super frugal. I yeah. mean, like, they, they were basically, like, you know, they're products of the financial crisis. So I think one of the things that we can expect from them is, like, they love deals, only – they're digital people too, right? So they shopped at they shop at thrift stores, and they do thrift store shopping online. So it, it takes all these things that you know, like I grew up and we we'd go shopping for flannels and thrift stores and stuff. But they found a way to to bring that mobile, right? right? And and shift with the times, right? You can, they they go to the malls and then shop on their phone. Yeah, they're, they're shopping at thrift stores for luxury items. Well, that's, that's, that's I mean, what when I, I was like in college, it was luxury. goodwill. This is like you know, hey, we're we're sho- this is thrift shopping for you know Poshmark, something like that. Let's buy like. But here's the thing: I love the, that the, Vince knows about Poshmark. Can I just say that? Yeah, but anyway, let's. moving on. Companies really have felt. I, I think this is really why we wanted to do this story right now. Companies feel like they got millennials wrong. Yeah. Right. And it took them, it's taken them years to catch up to that. So that once they've known that they've made mistakes like that and they've really missed gigantic opportunities, they look at Gen Z and say, we cannot get this wrong. And if we do get it wrong, it might cost us for the next decade. But I also feel like, Jim, that we should look at Gen Z that overseas, like in China and how they're shopping, because I feel like they're well ahead of what's happening with the Gen Z here in the United States, or at least yeah, certainly they're, impacting they're retail They're for a number of reasons. A big reason is that so much more in, or disposable income is controlled by Gen Z in China versus most places in the world. Right now, about 15% of household income is controlled by people who are less than age 23. That compares to, about, compares to about 3% here. And part of it is the... How do they do that? Part of it's the one-child policy. It feels policy. like 15% oh, okay. for those of I us mean, who have kids. Yeah, I'm people, like thinking of my 21-year-old. If, if you've only got one kid, you right. tend to coddle that child. Okay. Parents, grandparents, whatever. And so money is controlled by very young people there. And it's a generation that spends differently. They spend basically on mobile. They spend um, through social media. That's the biggest difference there. Social commerce, you know, where you take a social media site and allow all sorts of you know, sort of consuming transactions to happen within the site is a big deal there. It's almost, almost $500, million, uh, excuse me, $500 billion a Jeez. year there versus only $16 billion a year here in the U.S., I mean, they are way ahead of us in basically looking at something on their phone and saying, boy, that's really great what this makeup influencer has on right now. I'm going to buy that item. Just push a button. It's yours. It's a parent's worst nightmare. Yes. But it is, effect- <laughs> but it is impacting brands and retail in a big way. I mean, that's why they're trying to get ahead of it, right? Yeah. But, you know, it's funny. Like, you think about the, your 21-year-old, right? Like, what, what, how are they spending your money, right? Because rapidly, <laughs> rapidly, <laughs> they do that really well, right? That I can tell you for sure. And when you when you look at their consumer preferences, right, and how they're doing it differently than you do it, what what sticks with you? Uh, the barbell? Uh, no, I'm just kidding. No, I mean everything is on every, everything yeah. is online. I mean the, the, he every, demand, everything's electronic, instant. and it's almost like you know they're shopping like it's an interactive video game. Yeah. Good way to spend money. Your right. money. Yes. <laughs> anyway, check out this series of stories. It's incredible. It's the cover story of the magazine. You can find it at Bloomberg.com and also on the Bloomberg. Joe Weber, Joe Weber, editor of the magazine, and Jim Ellis, assistant managing editor of Business Week magazine. This is Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. 
just drive, baby. It's the question that drives Is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Just a few minutes left, about 12 minutes left in today's trading session. It is time for the drive to the close. Masa Takeda is portfolio manager of the Hennessy Japan Fund based in Hong Kong, back in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio in New York. That fund, by the way, beating just about all of its peers in the past one year and also nearly all of its peers over the past five years. Nice to have you back. Thanks for having me. So what do we need to know about what's going on in Japan right now? Well, Japan, um, as I've said in the past, um, the last six, five, five, six years largely driven by quantitative easing. Right. But going forward, I think that has run its course already. But going forward, what's, what's important is the, for the government to take the lead and push for structural reforms. That remains unchanged. But is that going to happen? Well, it's I mean, still easy monetary policy, right? No doubt about it. That will stay. That will remain in place for sure. But meanwhile, government should keep pushing through structural reforms. And structural reforms, by definition, it takes a long time to bear fruit. So just give it, give the government benefit of the doubt. So, and we did see the BOJ yesterday extend QE, essentially a mm-hmm. uh, longer period of time, um, planning to maintain low levels of short and long-term rates for an extended period, I guess was the term. So that should continue to play well for the equity market in Japan, no? Um, yeah, I really, I really think so. I mean, Japan cannot afford to raise rates just yet. Uh, but again, as I, as I, as I said already, um, you know, quantitative easing doesn't do anything to increase the potential growth rate of the economy. And what's what's lacking now is confidence in the economy, Which consumers, and businesses. Which is kind of what businesses. our Fed has said to our lawmakers constantly, right? right? You know, go through several administrations, whether it was Bernanke or Yellen. Yeah, and Draghi, the same thing. Or Powell, it's, a, it's, right. it's a central bank mantra. Right. Central yeah. bank can do just so much. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the government's turn to really structure, put in structural reforms, and uh, we need a lot of those Masa, to move the needle. What's the biggest structural reforms, or what's a couple of them that really need to be done that you think would make a huge difference? Oh, you're smiling. Why? <laughs> you know, unfortunately, there's no one single policy measure to turn around everything. I mean, it's, there's all kinds of reforms that have been put in place, and there will be more to come. You know, co- corporate governance reforms, tax reforms, and job market reforms. And th- those, are, those will slowly start to move the needle. And you say exporters are, are playing a big part of this with, again, at these levels, uh, profits are good and they're reinvesting in their core business activities. Uh, that's correct. I mean, 110, 111 yen to the dollar. Um, corporate Japan is throwing off a lot of cash flows. And like you said, um, these cash flows are being reinvested into core business activities. So that bodes well for sustained growth of corporate Japan. So I'm curious, you know, just looking at, as I said, your fund has done well longer term. Um, what are some of the new positions that maybe you've taken or what have you added to, I don't know, in the last few months? Well, I, as a general policy, I prefer not to talk about new, new additions to the fund. Okay. But um, portfolio is largely stable, very low turnover, and um, it's full of global companies. And we believe you know, Japan offers some of the most globally competitive companies out there. SoftBank, Shimano, NIDEC. NIDEC is a name that you like. Yeah. That's correct. And you guys have owned it for a while. Oh, yeah, that's correct. Tell, to walk us through, this is production of small motors. So tell us a little bit more about this company and why you think it's worth being in your portfolio. Well, so NIDEC is a precision motor uh, manufacturing uh, business, and it used to specialize in hard disk, hard disk uh, motor, uh, drive motors. And uh, they, over the last few years, they expanded their product portfolio. And we like the fact that electric motor is a very basic component that is used in almost every single manufacturing sector. And what I l- like even more is the management team. You know, this is a very uh, incredible management team that has great track record of managing through 
uh, financial crisis or economic down cycles in the past. So I'm full, uh, I have full confidence in current management um, for 2019. And, w- and one of the other stocks you mentioned. Can I just say their ADR alone is up 25% this year. So we continue to see some momentum. And they're growing the top and the bottom lines. You're yes, seeing the growth. So I'm vindicated, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> for the moment. <laughs> for now. She'll come back at you anytime. Um, you're talking about a company that's uh, eye drops and skin care, cosmetic companies. Um, Solid brand among Asian consumers. That sounds like a pretty nice, uh, a, a nice ad. Can you tell us something about that. That's right. So the underlying thesis is that Japanese consumer product brands have strong appeal to Asian middle consumers. And strong brand loyalty as well. Pardon me. Strong brand loyalty. That's, that's correct. And in addition to that, the attract- attractiveness of Royal Pharmaceutical. They're now venturing into regenerative medicine field. So they have uh, you know fat tissue derived stem cell expertise and try to produce anti-aging cosmetics as wow. well as drugs to treat liver disease. So that's a great op- optionality for this stock at the it's moment. It's a smaller part of their business at this point? Or, that's right. But they're working on it. That's right. Is it a company that I'm just looking at? I mean, most of their sales, understandably, are in Japan. Uh, they also sell into China. I'm not quite sure what other is. But, I mean, is this something that where they can they have a lot of potential to grow their global markets? They're outside the Japanese market? I, I think so. I mean, they already have or regional. does it matter to the to Well, the regional story? footprints, you know, not just in China but Vietnam Indonesia, they have production bases as well as a sales network. Mm. And obviously, given the size of the population in, in this region, uh, there's, I think, long runway for growth. Um, I, that's a really interesting name. Sorry, I'm just like reading into it. Shimano, um, this is, we know it, bicycles, high-end bicycles. And they're still around. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, <laughs> they've been around for over half a century and an always yeah. dominant producer of high-end bicycle parts. That, that, that's fascinating with everyone moving towards electric cars and 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 that type of a process. But in certain countries, bicycles are still the way to get around. Uh, that's right. And I think uh, on the back of rising health consciousness, uh, more and more people are taking up bicycling uh, to to stay healthy or stay in good shape. So, um, And Shimano is still the dominant player. They throw off a lot of cash flows and high returns on capital and high margins. We yeah, like free it. cash flow is pretty interesting. Yep, and and so I was just looking at kind of revenue growth year over year. I mean, we're looking at revenue growth about three percent, I think, for uh, twenty nineteen, but about thirty seven percent growth in terms of earnings per share. Right. So how are they growing those earnings? What are they doing? Is it cutting costs or what are they doing? No, I mean, squeeze kind of costs out of the equation. Thanks to the dominant presence, I mean, they they can generate a lot of cash flows based on existing revenue scale. But uh, over the last few years, revenue roughly flatlined because of uh, durable and discretionary nature of the product. I mean, they are largely prone to purchasing cycle. But after three years of sluggish revenue trend, we think that demand is going to pick up because the, the inventory levels in the supply chain have been healthy all along. So if there's any uptick in end consumer demand and mar- market demand, are they going to benefit? And I think China, Europe, and U.S. are still promising. You know, we did a story earlier about Gen Z globally and how the younger generation, these are people born from like 1994 going forward or just shopping differently. We're finding the Japanese consumer shopping differently, maybe a younger generation, 30, just got about 30 seconds. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, the millennials are behaving different, differently than, than, than my generation. <laughs> um, but uh, so it's definitely an interesting trend to watch. All right. Good to have you back with us. Safe travels. Really appreciate it. Masa Takeda is portfolio manager of the Hennessy Japan Fund based in Hong Kong in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Thursday. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.